Hi, everyone. Welcome to the MBA Insider Podcast. I am your host, Al D, and the author of MBA Insider. This podcast is for career-driven professionals looking for advice on how to grow their careers by leveraging the skills, experiences, and knowledge gained from an MBA degree. In each episode, I'll give you a look into the business school experience, along with practical tips, career advice, and real-life stories to help professionals grow their careers. All right. I'm excited today because I have a good friend and former colleague of mine, Francis McManus, uh, on the MBA Insider Podcast. Uh, Francis is uh, joining me uh, from from Cape Cod, but uh, I'm excited to chat with Francis today. Uh, he and I go way back, uh, back to our days in undergrad at Boston College, but we also spent some time together um, at uh, Deloitte when we both were consultants there. And one of the things I've always appreciated about Francis is that um, he's a pretty thoughtful guy um, and he's very um, mindful of the decisions that he makes. And, you know, when you're in business school, there's lots of decisions you have to make uh, personally, professionally about your career. And so I think he is a great resource and has a great story about how he's kind of thought through some of those. Um, and then the last thing that I think he's going to talk about, and I would love to kind of chat with him about is that uh, it's clear more than ever that uh, particularly leaders have a responsibility to take action with um, trying to create a more equal world. And Francis is someone who has always, I think in my mind, has always tried to strive uh, to promote equality and inclusion um, wherever he's gone. And so I would love to kind of get his thoughts on that, you know, particularly from being an MBA graduate and someone with um, a lot of education. And so um, Francis, uh, thanks so much for joining me. And I'm excited because um, in addition to uh, being a Kellogg grad from the class of 2016, um, uh, you're a, a fellow BC alum, but before I jump too much into who you are and what you've done, uh, I want to warm up because I know you're a uh, you're an MBA fan just like I am. So uh, why don't you give me your uh, your starting lineup for your all time favorite MBA players? Yeah, first, uh, thanks Al for inviting me. It's a, a pleasure to join, and that is right. It's weird to think about, but we've known each other going back uh, probably 15 years. Uh, back in Boston. So pleasure to be here. So good question. I love this question. What would be my top five starting lineup? Uh, I like to answer this question, not from a perspective necessarily of what would be the most dominant five, but who are my guys? So uh, number one would have to be Jordan. And he's obviously most dominant. Um, Grew up with Jordan. Uh, That was my favorite player of all time as a, as a, as a kid. Uh, second would have to be Braun, LeBron. Um, have been a big LeBron fan ever since the decision when everyone else decided they hated him. I thought the hate went a little too far and I've been riding for LeBron ever since then. So LeBron and Jordan, one and two. And then I would put, uh, like I said, my guys, I'd have to put Allen Iverson, three. Um, when I was growing up playing CYO ball, I always had the Iversons. Number four, I'd have to put Garnett, KG. Uh, that guy is intense in the most ridiculous, beautiful way. Won a championship for the Boston Celtics, which is my my local team. So I've always appreciated him and the way he turned around the culture at, uh, at, at the Celtics. Uh, and then number five, um, I think as a kid growing up, playing ball in high school when Steve Nash won his two MVPs, maybe I would say Steve Nash. 
gave uh, inspiration for uh, a, a white kid like me who could uh, play ball and, and hold his own in the league, and he did more than hold his own, won back-to-back MVP. So I think that's what I do. Jordan, Braun, AI, KG, and then Steve Nash. I like those. So uh, I, too, owned a couple pairs of Iversons. I had the, uh, I had the answer yeah. fours, like the, the red ones. Uh, those were some of my favorite favorite basketball shoes that I've ever I've ever worn in my life. Um, yeah, so I, I I'm not I'm never good with basketball shoes. Remember the numbers? I had the one with the air bubbles. Yep, I know which one. Are those the fours? They're no. patent leather and the air bubbles, and then you tie them tight, and it would have the Reebok logo across the laces. Yep, I um, those. And then there was actually another pair with air bubbles that were inside the sole of the shoe versus yes. outside the sole of the shoe that I had, and then I had the questions, which were his first one with the honeycomb yeah. soles. So yeah, yeah, that was my guy. Yeah, no, for sure. And uh, it's ironic because right now we're, um, we're, when we're filming this, uh, this is, I think like, I've been reading all the articles. This is like the 10 year, is it the, I think it's like the 10 year uh, anniversary of the decision. Um, like yeah. around this time, like around this time, yeah. like 10 years ago. Um, yeah, that's right. That's but, uh, right. It's, it's crazy yeah. to think it was 10 years ago already. Clearly, Braun has been very successful since then. Uh, so yeah. I, I like your, I like your team. All right. So we yeah. could, we could do a whole podcast on basketball, but we'll get, we'll stick to business school for now. Um, so yeah. before we even dig into business school, uh, what, talk a little bit about what did you do before business school and why did you end up choosing, uh, to go get your MBA in the first place? Yeah. Al, as you know, the first thing I did out of undergrad is I was a seventh grade math teacher in New York city. And I really did not know what I was getting into as a 22 year old, but I wanted to teach and I wanted to live in New York. And so I did a program called New York city teaching fellows, which is similar to teach for America that people are more uh, familiar with. The difference with teaching fellow is my cohort of teachers that I was trained with were not just straight from undergrad. It was a mix of people starting a second career, former attorneys, people who retired in other professions who all wanted to be a teacher. So I taught seventh grade math for four years and loved being a teacher. I was also a coach, but after four years, it was time for me to do something uh, new or my curiosity got the best of me. And uh, I ended up starting to work in management consulting. I was introduced to the industry through a nonprofit that I worked with in the summer while I was teaching. That was a big corporate sponsor and a lot of volunteers from the management consulting firm I joined, worked with this nonprofit. And so met some people that were at the at this firm and joined. Uh, and same as teaching, and maybe I, this is a trend, I, I joined management consulting. Looking back, I had no idea what it was. Um, what I knew is I would get, or what I had been told is I get exposure to new things, uh, new industries, uh, and, and I just liked the idea that I would uh, be able to experiment and figure out what I liked as a consultant. So I did that for three years. And then by this point, you know, I was towards my mid to late twenties and it sounds weird and it's probably not true, but I don't really think I knew what an MBA was or that business. I, I probably understood the concept of business school, but I never really thought of it as something that I would want to do or even knew what were, the types of schools or the things you would look for in a school uh, or that, you know, GMAT or the process of applying. I was just completely unaware of that. Um, And I probably should have been more aware, but then the firm I was with had a program where they would sponsor people to get 
uh, graduate degrees. And I heard of that program and then I started talking to more people who did that. And so I decided to go, decided it was worth uh, doing. And um, the reason why I wanted to do it, I was an undergrad history major. Uh, at the time, I thought I wanted to be a lawyer. I really like to read. I really like to write, particularly about history. And then was a, a teacher, like I mentioned before. And uh, at this point, was a consultant for three years and was enjoying the work. But I felt like I didn't have that foundation of uh, classroom learning, of academic learning, of um, kind of business fundamentals. And so for that reason, and, you know, kind of maybe principally because my firm was willing to sponsor me to go get a business degree, which I realize is very fortunate and something that not, not everyone has access to. That's why I, I uh, decided to go or started thinking about going. Yeah, no, I think that's great. and makes a ton of, makes, makes a ton of sense. Um, you know, one of the things that I always noticed at least for my classmates uh, in business school was that, you know, particularly those who worked in some form of education before they came into school um, had a much um, more holistic lens of like the MBA experience. And I think, you know, certainly much more empathy in terms of particularly being in the classroom for like the professors or the instructors or whatnot. Um, but I'm just curious, you know, obviously you worked in consulting, but you know, what did your past experience, you know, working as a teacher or just being in education um, how was that valuable when you were, you know, when you were at Kellogg, you know, how did that come out to light in different ways? Uh, well, first of all, to, to go back to the question I just answered, I, that's how I think about it now at the time when I went to business school, because I imagine there are people who listen to this who are, um, I don't want to give the assumption that I hadn't considered it or didn't spend a lot of time on essays or things like that. At the time, a big part of like the reason why I applied to the schools I did and, and kind of the case I made for myself on applying was around wanting to take the experience I had in the classroom, working in a community, working with kids, some of the experience I had in consulting and combine those into something that would be uh, contribute something positive to the world and learn something at a business school that would help me be able to do that better. Um, so I think part of what uh, was valuable about my experience in education prior to business school was, was I had that perspective from the beginning. And we can talk more about that later on. I think we will, how my perspective on that has changed, but I had a sense of why I wanted to be at school or why it was important beyond just me. And that was to learn some things and be able to contribute positively to communities and that I cared about in society generally. Um, you mentioned having more empathy for my teachers. Uh, I think that that's probably true. I, I also think what it helped me do as, as a teacher, it forced me to build relationships with a lot of different types of students, students from all different types of backgrounds and build authentic, genuine relationships with them where I really saw and heard who they were. So I think as much as being a teacher, a former teacher helped me in the classroom or have empathy for my professors, I think it helped me have bring my authentic self to building relationship with my classmates. And I'd like to think it gave me um, practice in building relationships with people 
from all different types of background that were in my class, uh, whether they were from the U.S. or not, whether they worked in different industries, um, all different mix of, of folks. And I, I don't know if I would have been able, for example, if I compare my experience in undergrad, I don't think there was as much of a richness in the network and the friendships that I made uh, in undergrad compared to business school. And I think why I was able to do that better in business school was because of that time as a teacher that forced me to um, really be present uh, in, de in developing relationships with a, a, a you know, a, a greater mix of people from different backgrounds. No, I think that's a really good point. And, you know, I think most, many people, many students who go to business school often, you know, one of the reasons why you want to go is, is for the quote unquote network, right. In terms yeah. of what it gives yeah. you, but the, the impetus for the student then is I think what you just mentioned in terms of actually being thoughtful and intentional about taking the time to, to meet people and putting in the work and effort to get to know your classmates to seek out those diverse perspectives or to learn and be curious about um, the people that are there. I mean, it's, you do get a built-in network and that's great. And you'll always yeah. have that on your, on your resume or in your LinkedIn profile or whatever, but for the actual richness of the experience itself um, that, you know, and, and even beyond that, it, it does take effort or time to like what you just said. I'm um, in an open yeah. mind to like actually putting in the work to do just that. Yeah. How, how was that for you, Al? Like how would you compare your ability yeah. to, build friendships and relationships and a network in undergrad versus mm -hmm. business school. Was it yeah. a, a different experience for you? Yeah. Good question. Um, it was. And um, inside baseball, because you know, some of my friends uh, <laughs> like fairly well, um, they're clowns, but in the best of ways. Um, but I was really lucky in that during my freshman year, I made some really good friends really quickly. And mm -hmm stayed friends with them throughout the four years and not only stayed friends with them, but we, we didn't take as many classes together, but we did, we did a lot of other things together. You know, we, we, we went to football games together. We, we traveled to away football games together. Uh, we participated in student government together. We went on service trips together. And so uh, yeah. because we had those shared, um, those, those shared experiences, it just naturally almost put us in, in places to build strong relationships and, I mean, you know, some of them, I mean, like I'm in touch with yeah. them to this day and we still do many before COVID. We did many of those things to this day. And I just, I'm really yeah. lucky in that I had that. And I think the other thing that I had was that, um, uh, in addition to just having always making a point to like build relationships with people, I went to, uh, Boston college is a Jesuit school. Um, I went to a Jesuit middle school and high school. And I think like a hallmark of that was just always the importance of, um, seeking out other people and truly um, getting to know them as people. And so just, again, having an inherent privilege and, and, and like almost like having that in my mind, um, yeah. that was, that was really what shaped my BC experience. What was interesting about grad school uh, at yeah. UNC or business school at UNC is that um, I definitely had, I definitely had some of that, but in undergrad, you're all kind of in the same boat in that yeah. it's your first college experience. Whereas in grad school, as you know, people are coming in at different phases of their lives, right? You have some people who um, have families and, and kids. You have people who are adjusting to yeah. being in the United States for the first time. And yeah. it's not bad or, or it's not better or worse. It's just is different. And so the relationships you build are just done like in, um, in different ways. Um, yeah. You know, what, what is nice or what was nice for me about UNC at least, um, you know, Kellogg is in my, from compared to UNC is, is, 
Uh, Kello compared to UNC is pretty big. So the yeah. one nice thing about UNC that I did really appreciate was because it was small, like you did really, you really did yeah. feel like you knew everyone and that, um, yeah. you know, if nice. you, and you wanted to know them, you could. So that was how it was different for me. But um, I still definitely have people from UNC who I'm still in touch with all the time. Um, yeah. And, and I think I, I want to expand a little bit on the network point. Um, Cause that, to me means something different in a, probably in any context, but in a business school context than it does maybe now for me professionally. Although maybe I learned how to apply the idea of building a network in business school that I now try to take with me professionally. Before business school network really um, felt impersonal and it felt inauthentic. And the two things that I focused on in business school were friendship. I, I developed a lot of really strong friendships that have now, because I'm in a similar field or industry to a lot of the people by definition of being in a graduate school program, um, those friendships I now tap into for more networking purposes, more career purposes, but it feels way more authentic uh, and takes less energy out of me to tap into those, to those pe people because they're, they're rooted in real friendship. And then the second thing is exposure. So friendship and exposure and exposure really was a lot of the value of business school was just meeting people who had worked in industries that I'd never come close to or worked in fun job functions that I'd never come close to. And rather than trying to learn about them by reading about them, or even as a consultant working with a client in that space, I could just ask people my dumb questions or get a sense of what their day to day was like, or get a sense about what they liked or didn't like about that. And that has just been an invaluable to me, and I'm a naturally curious person, so maybe I value that more than others, but that's what networking didn't mean to me before business school, but what I, I kind of learned it to mean during my time there was friendship and exposure versus just kind of collecting um, hellos and sending follow-up emails. Yeah, and I, I, I love how you differentiated in that, and part of the reason why is because I almost cringe when I have to say the word networking, but you almost just, I almost just naturally default to saying it because uh, it's just so pervasive because you, you're right. Like it, um, it's, it's not, it's not about to your point, sending emails or collecting business cards. It's about um, getting to know people or, or getting to learn um, new, new things or new ideas or be exposed to new things or ideas. And, and that is the value in when you go to a school that has such diverse people who come in from different walks of life, whether they're teachers or consultants or bankers or accountants or, 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 or what have you. And, and and I think that is also the unique aspect of, of business school, particularly amongst graduate degrees, right? You take a look at our yeah. friends who are lawyers or doctors, right? It's like you make that decision when you're an undergrad, whereas most people who go to business school have some level of work experience. Um, and that richness is what makes the class, can make the classroom really great. Um, I remember one of my classmates um, in economics class, like he worked, um, he basically worked for the equivalent of the Fed in Korea. And so like, getting his perspective wow. about like economics was like fascinating to me because it just was so, it was nothing I had ever thought about before or had to. And so um, like you, I'm very curious. And so I love those kinds of things. I eat that shit up, but, uh, yeah. but yeah, it's um, I, I'm glad you differentiated between that. Um, actually, if you wouldn't mind, tell me a little bit more about your experience, you know, at Kellogg, right? So MBA experience, it's going to be unique in a lot of ways. It, it helps you grow, learn, you know, what, yeah. You know, how did, how did Kellogg in your time there really help you grow and learn or, or how did your life look different afterwards or how did you see the world differently after going through that experience? 
Yeah. Um, it's a really good question. So I, I, I'd like to answer this in maybe two or three different examples. So the first was, it will be my, the favorite class that I took was a class with uh, a guy named Florian Zettelmeyer, Professor Zettelmeyer. I believe he's still at Kellogg. I hope he's still at Kellogg. He was a great professor. And he taught a class on customer analytics. And it was using uh, statistical analysis to come up with insights around your customers. So whether it's new segments or um, the effectiveness of promotions or marketing lift, things like that. Uh, and I'd always love, again, this is my one of the first times that I'd done uh, business education, like formally in a classroom. And I'd always love statistics. and um, and, and so to see it applied in a way that I thought was interesting. And then also I, it was kind of seeing like the world, particularly the world of tech unmasked in terms of how a lot of uh, companies uh, create value or identify opportunities to delight their customers or, or the people that they work with. That was really cool. So I love that class. And it, it not only was an enjoyable class, but like I said, it helped me identify more and more the importance of um, data, but then also have a better understanding of where I needed to be as a consumer, not just as a um, kind of working for a tech company, but also as a consumer of the tech, be aware of um, my privacy and be aware of how, how companies were kind of targeting me. So that, that was, that, that had an impact on, on me moving forward. Uh, the, I did a couple of different internships. The, the coolest one I did definitely was with the Chicago Bulls and worked for half a year on their, with their strategy team on how they were pricing um, non-season ticket individual game tickets. And that was just really cool uh, because, you know, walk by, uh, I was still, I was a student, so I wasn't down there every day, but we'd go down maybe once a week, once every other week, and we'd walk by the Michael Jordan statue into the United Center for my time with the Bulls. And that was just really cool because it, uh, Kind of affirm that the things that I thought were the most interesting or coolest parts of life or companies or organizations or sports, that there were jobs behind those and that I was someone who could work in those jobs. Um, that might sound obvious to a lot of people, but I think my immediately going into education and then really trying to prove myself as a consultant for a couple of years um, that was one of the first times where I was like, oh, if there's a company doing something cool, like I might have something to add valuable to that. So that was a really incredible moment for me that I carry with my, me now. And then the third one, we talked a little bit about, about this was just the people I met, man, like my, some of my best friends that I now for four years out of business school, continue to talk to every day, see as much as we can, um, are people that I met in business school. Um, and a lot of that is kind of the time you spend together. Uh, you're at a part time in your life where at least for me, um, you know, I was uh, a serious student, but I had time to build relationships with other people and other people were in the similar position. I knew myself a little bit better to the point before about undergrad versus grad school. I knew myself better as a 27 year old, 28 year old. Actually, I was 30 in business school, so 30 year old. Than I did in undergrad, but um, and so I, I I sought out and built really strong relationships with people that I have similar that I really interest with and really click with, um, and so that that has had an enormous impact on my life and will continue to have an enormous impact on my life um, 
friends are very important to me and uh, I'm very grateful for, for that as uh, you know, even more than, than, you know, my favorite class or my favorite internship, like very grateful for those friendships. Yeah. And I think, you know, as you're kind of describing your experience there, I think what stands out to me is that I think I always say like, and not only I always say, but like, it's often said that how you spend a, your time is kind of a reflection of your priorities or in theory, like that's what it should be. And to me, like what I'm hearing, I mean, between your just general um, curious nature, as well as your appreciation for relationships and, and friendships, you know, as I think back as to what you just said about like some of the more memorable moments or where you invested your time, like those to me kind of speak in the way that like you did align a lot of the things that were important to, or you did align your priorities to investing time in those things that matched those priorities that you had. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Yeah. 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 Okay. So you graduated Kellogg, um, mm-hmm. went back to good old uncle D, um, went back into consulting and uh, changed up offices though. Um, mm-hmm. you know, I think like a lot of people want to go into consulting for a lot of different reasons, all of which are, are great and fine, but walk me through or give me a sense of, at least for you, cause I know this is different for every consultant. Um, you know, what, what were some of the, what were some of the highs and lows of that, of that experience? Um, particularly, yeah. you know, after business school. Yeah, it was not an easy, any, anyone who is listening to this, who, uh, is sponsored to go to graduate school in any way and is considering going back regardless of the firm, regardless of whether it's management consulting or something else. I, I don't think anyone who I know who has done that has found it easy. Um, I don't know how you found it out, but I think it really took me, I mean, the same, when you start a new job, they say it takes six months um, for you to really start to feel like you're producing at the level you expect out of yourself. Um, I probably naively thought that wouldn't be the case coming out of business school, going back to the same firm, albeit in a different uh, office in San Francisco versus New York. But it took me six months and the first six months were really hard. So anyone who's considering that choice know that um, we're in the middle of that choice now know that it's completely natural for that to, to suck um, for the six, for the, for, for when you first get back. And it might be a signal that you made the wrong choice and you should leave. And that's totally valid choice. Or it might be the signal that like, Hey, it'll, you know, it'll get better. And that's just kind of the natural progression of things. But what, what I liked about consulting uh, over the four years that I was there post business school is you just learn a lot. Like the firm is just really set up for you to learn and ramp up really quickly. Like in consulting, never forget particularly at the associate level, like out of business school, you are the product. And so um, like literally you are the product margin off of your time is how the firm makes money. And so uh, it is just essential that you get ramped up and you're creative to whatever project team, whatever practice you're part of as soon as possible. And in, in, because that is so essential to the business, the firm has processes in place to make sure that you do that. So you just learn a lot very, very quickly you also get exposure because the leverage model for them to be profitable is that people who are at an associate level need to be able to interact with executives either on their own or from time to time with a partner in the room. Otherwise the model just doesn't work. The leverage model doesn't work. So you also get exposure to levels of an organization and decision-making that um, you, you probably will not get at many other corporate jobs. You, you might get at a startup just because it's so lean that everyone has visibility or, or maybe a say in decision-making. Uh, but coming out of business school, wanting to kind of de-risk it and go to a big company, you will not get 
exposure most likely that you will in consulting. So that's a high. The low is if for me after four years is I was just spending, you start to transition from being the product to running the business. And when you're running the business, the business you're running is the sale and delivery of consulting services. And that industry is, there's parts of it that are really interesting to me. I like the selling process. I like uh, identifying and scoping problems. I like solving problems for people. I like meeting new people and working with them and getting people to work together who you just met, which is a lot of what consulting is. But that's not the thing I personally wanted to be an expert in is the selling and delivery of professional services. Um, and so that is uh, what, for me, ultimately why I left. And I think I also decided it was time for a change. So much of your energy goes into, because it is client service after all, and you're selling every moment that you're actually delivering. Um, so much goes into the design aesthetic and just the presentation um, and, and all the effort that goes into making your clients feel like they're getting value from you and, and willing to pay um, the, the price that comes with a, a management consulting firm day after day. And I just would, was uh, ready for a change where my mental energy and my thought wasn't just going to managing a portion of it. It wasn't going to managing clients. It was going to running a, a business. And so that's ultimately why I want to get out of professional services, but Hey, everyone has a boss. So there's always a part of sort of managing expectations. That's part of your job. I think it's just particularly present in consulting. Uh, and, and after four years, you learn a lot from that experience, but it's not what I was looking to do, at least uh, right now. Yeah. And I, I, I think a couple of things that you said that I think are good anecdotes, but really important to think about if you are considering consulting is number one, to your point of the business model and the economics of it, right? In terms of what you said about the leverage model and the importance of getting the associates to do the work and drive so that um, you're billing less from the partner's time, which is you know significantly more expensive. Um, that is both an opportunity and a challenge in the sense that you do you know you do get the chance to get a lot of exposure, perhaps more than you would have gotten you know somewhere else, which can be really great. You know, on the flip side of it, um, the sheer kind of like the reality of that is that you're going to be working a lot in a lot of cases, and and that can that works both ways. Like if you got a really good project, that can be really awesome, and you know to get that high of like working long hours, but into something that is either really interesting or that you're really contributing to in a meaningful way that can be really engaging and exciting. Um, you know, as it can also be really incredibly draining or incredibly stressful when it is, you know, kind of crappy or when, um, it's a tough environment or in the old quote unquote old days, when you're getting up at 4am to go hop on an airplane and then go work a 14 hour day. Um, yeah. and so that like, to your point, everything comes with pros and cons. But the other thing, um, uh, the other thing that I think you said is that um, uh, if you are successful in consulting in terms of growing your career and rising through the ranks, at some point you will be an expert in selling, right? Because like, yep. or delivering. I mean, but like truly like selling, you know, at the end of the, because fundamentally at the end of the day, it's about, we got to bring in the work and then we got to make sure it's, it's delivered. And so one of the things I always talk with people about and fully recognize you can certainly do consulting for a couple of years before you go in to get into something else. But if you are thinking about it as a long-term career, I always encourage people to think about, you know, do you feel like at some point in your career, you'd be interested in a role where you are selling? Because if you look at what partners, you know, do, you know, that's, that's a huge component like of, of that, right. You know, any partner is yep. going to have to, they have a number they have to hit. Right. So. Yep. 
It, it's, it's interesting because it's selling and it's making markets. It's like selling mm -hmm. and product, yes. at least the way that it was set up at Deloitte. I think other firms operate differently where they develop IP uh, kind of internally, but a lot of the, the model of the company we worked at, um, a lot of the IP and perspective is sort of developed through the rigor of the sales process at times. And so you're both like a product manager Mm -hmm. of the offering that you're selling to a client, you're selling to a client, and then some partners don't stay involved in delivery, but potentially you're also then delivering it. So like you're almost running the full funnel yes. of, uh, of a business, um, which, which can be really great. Um, but, um, you know, it's not for everyone, but yeah, it's really, it's, it's, it's an interesting model that even though I'd worked in consulting for four years before business school, as an analyst, um, kind of pre-business school, you don't really appreciate right. fully what, what, what the business is of consulting. Um, but yeah, you make a great point about, about selling or interest in selling when it comes to consulting. That's core to the, to the business model. Um, I'm just curious. Um, I'm, I know you learned a lot in your time there, but if there's maybe like one or two things that you, you think were critical that you took from that experience, in consulting yeah. that are important to important to you to this day, you know, what yeah, are, yeah. what might some of those things be? I think two things. So I think one would be um, the power of incentives, particularly uh, uh, in consulting when you start doing uh, more strategy work and you're working with a C-suite, um, understanding um, the incentives of each stakeholder in that executive team um, both from their personal incentives, how they might be compensated, um, you, what, what is personally important to them, either by their values or in their career, or just having a sense of what the things that uh, CMO, for example, would generally care about because they have, because um, they're a marketer. Um, that, that is such a powerful driver of decision-making and the ability when, it, when necessary to form consensus, which, is um, maybe it's consensus and name only, and there's actually a true hidden decision maker, but the appearance of consensus as a consultant, sometimes that becomes your job because the value of your work product, particularly in a strategy project will be dependent on does this strategy get adopted or how is it received by the executive team and understanding all the different incentives and personalities at play on that executive team are critical. You're just not going to succeed if you don't do that. Um, kind of take that, do the survey of that and then continue to revisit that throughout your work. And then the second thing would be what I learned in consulting and I learned it from an analyst that was on a team of mine, his name is Richard. Richard would come to work every day and be um, so positive. And, um, and what I learned from him was that being positive um, is infectious that it builds culture um, and it's a skill. And it's a skill uh, that I would, uh, you know, if I were interviewing or building a team, like people who are able to find a way to be positive. And I don't mean inauthentically positive. When things go bad, like you need to acknowledge that. That's part of, I think, being positive is the ability to be like, this sucks right now. Um, but having a positive attitude and finding a way to get to that space, particularly in consulting, because you're working in small rooms, you're working on tight deadlines is a skill. And what I learned from Richard and what I learned kind of those four years after business school is to consider it the application of positivity in a 
corporate environment in a way that's inclusive, in a way that's authentic is a skill and it should be treated as such and should be hired for, and it should be, um, you know, um, you know, just respected as that. And those are both great lessons and I, I love them both for, for different reasons. Um, the first one I feel every day, I work in a very cross-functional role. And whenever I step into a meeting, I always have to think to myself, who are the people in this meeting? What organizations or what functions do they represent? And what are their drivers and what are the things they care about? Or what are the things yeah. they're metriced on? Because to your point, much of how they see the world is going to align to that. And even if they're not on my direct team, or even if they're not in an organization that I have to work with a lot, I still have to keep that in mind because it's going to influence, I think, a lot of their own thinking. Um, so yeah. I think that is super critical. And I, the second one, I'd love that because one of the things that I've always thought, which I think speaks to this a little bit, is that I think that one of the most underrated skills that someone can have, particularly if they're working in either a large organization or a cross-functional role, is uh, to be a good teammate. When you're working on something that where you're in a big team or where you're working with lots of people, I think that sometimes being that good teammate who can, can show that positivity um, has outsized returns to the morale of the team, but just in the ability to get stuff done. And particularly, you know, if you're in a small room in a windowless conference room in the basement of an office, you know, working 14 hours a day, um, you're going to need good teammates to do a lot of different things, whether it's to be positive, whether it's to roll up the sleeves and, 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 to, and to get what's needed to get done or like whatever it is. Um, and, and there's lots of different ways being a good teammate can kind of manifest itself in. But I would say that one of the qualities or characteristics that I've often found in good teammates is, is the fact that they, they can show up with that positivity. Um, and, I, and, I, and I absolutely agree with you. It doesn't, it's not fake. It's not cheer, being cheery when things are bad. It's, uh, but it is, I think, in that moment, it's acknowledging for what it is and having the ability to say, all right, well, this sucks, but like, let's figure out what we need to do and, and keep marching on and, and to make progress. So Yeah. What you said made me think of two more, two more things. One, I had a basketball coach once uh, I was a point guard uh, in high school and in, in, in CYO growing up. And he said, your job as a point guard is to be able to be the person who is most critical uh, of your teammates when they need it. And the only way that you can do that is if out of every 10 things you tell a teammate, nine are positive. And so uh, he encouraged us as point guards, it was kind of a summer camp of, of point guards to like in the layup lines, you know, give your teammates high five, tell them that they look good, tell them their shoes look good, tell them they smell good, like joke with them. Um, but, but let them know that you're there for them and that you love them through that, through that sort of those affirmations. Um, so that when they're doing something and that you need to be critical uh, and they need to be able to trust you, that you're not biased against them, that you've set up that, that baseline of uh, positivity. So that's always stuck with me. And the second thing I would say, I think it's important. I don't think either of us mean this, um, but like hiring for positivity, that's not like a screen that I would do. Cause it, there's a lot of reasons in the world to not be positive. And there are a lot of people um, who come from different backgrounds that have reasons to not be positive on given days. And, and so it's not that it's, I would only hire people who are positive in, in a particular way. Um, but I just think it's, it, it what Chris, what, what uh, evolved in my thinking was that it is a skill to be considered for um, when previously I considered it uh, more of a personality. Um, and, and it's not like a, a um, necessary skill, 
um, but it is a, a beneficial skill if, if it is someone's strength. No, I think that makes a ton of sense. Um, number one, you're a tall dude. How are you ever a point guard? <laughs> yeah, man. I, um, I was the littlest guy on my team, man, until I was uh, a senior in high school. I Got had it. Uh, okay. a, a late growth spurt. Yeah. Okay. That makes more sense. And also, I'm also sense. not that tall. I'm not that tall. Okay. Well, maybe tall. I'm sure. I'm, I'm basketball wise. Fair. I'm not that tall, no, that, yeah. that's fair. That's fair. Fair okay. point. Yeah. Well, no, because I put in perspective, I was a point guard too, and I know I'm short. So, and I know you're taller than me <laughs> and have always been taller than me. So anywho, um, but that also explains why you have AI and Steve Nash in your five, uh, all percent, all time. I like that. Yeah. Okay. That's great. Um, okay. So one of the, I think one of the things that I pulled out from, you know, as you're kind of talking about this, um, in working in consult, whether it's working in consulting or just from being in business school is your, uh, it kind of your ability to, to, to learn from lots of different people and to, and to have empathy for that. And I think that one of the things I've always respected about you is, is how you use that empathy to build relationships with others, not just to support them, but also to, to understand. And I remember one of the things we previously talked about was, you know, back when you were at Kellogg, you were actually one of the things you were, you were one of the leadership roles you had is you were one of, you were a male ally in the, um, the Kellogg Women's Business Association. And one of the things you've always kind of done, um, because I, I'm connected to you on social media is, um, you're always highlighting other, other important and relevant social causes or just causes that mean something to humanity. And I'm just curious, um, what's, what's kind of behind this or what's always kind of driven you to kind of, um, to, to gravitate towards these things. Yeah. So first of all, I would say anything I do is, is the least I could do and um, still something I'm pushing myself to do more of. Um, yeah. I, I would say uh, it starts with, um, you asked kind of what, what, what started this, what's influenced me. Without a doubt, it's my dad. Um, my dad is a very special, special dude, very principled, loyal guy. Uh, when he met my mom, he was working in a hospital as a handiwork, as a handyman. Uh, and then they decided to start a family and have kids. And my mom um, continued her career. My dad stayed home. It was a stay-at-home dad with myself and then eventually two younger sisters of mine in, in the 80s, which was not a, um, a typical choice that a lot of men made. And so, um, but he made it and was happy to make it because it was the right choice for his family. And I, I think from the beginning, that's always given me two things. One, the um, the space to kind of think differently about um, the roles people play or asked to play in society. Cause I saw from an early age, my dad playing an atypical role and in my mind thriving in it. Um, and then two, um, not being, I'm nowhere near as bold and courageous as, as my dad. It's, it's something I'm working on, but um, to, if something is the right thing for you and your family and the people you love, you know, do it, even if it is atypical or considered bold or unusual, um, at the time. Um, so without a doubt, that's, that's where, where, where it came from. And then I think a big reason why I got into teaching was my dad was a, a teacher prior to working in that hospital that I mentioned. And so I became a teacher and, and I, I learned, and, and like I mentioned before, was in a position where I had to develop relationships with all my students who were from all different types of background that's in a public school in New York city. And, um, 
in order to do my job well, that was just a prerequisite that I had to develop those relationships. And the more authentically I could see and hear my students for who they were, the better I would be as a teacher. Um, and, and so that uh, impressed upon me the importance of trying to uh, doing your best to listen and seeing someone for who they are, for who they say they are and believing them for when they say something um, as a way to build relationships uh, with, with people. So I think it starts with my dad and, and then uh, again, my, my time as a teacher was very formative. Thank No, thanks for sharing that. And that's, that's really great. And I, I knew some of that about your family, but I didn't know all of that. So that's, that is, um, that's, that's, that is special. And that's, that's great. And awesome. I think that uh, one, of you know, so I, my family was a little bit, a little bit different, but I drew out some of the same principles. I, I have a deep respect for both my mom and my dad. And, um, mm-hmm. but what's similar about it, at least for me, is that so much of my parents and their experience has kind of shaped how I see the world and, and the decisions that they've made or how they've chosen to raise my sister and I are things that I have thought yeah. about deeply um, and have internalized myself. And, and, and that is something I feel like, you know, I, I, I hear a little bit of, at least as you think about, as you talk about your dad and in terms of yeah. um, either how, what he ra- said to you or the actions that he took have helped you kind of see the world in such a way. Um, yeah. And so yeah. I think that's, I think that's really yeah, I think that's really great. I just want to say, I, I don't know your your parents, and and but I've you know we're we've been known each other for a while, and we're friends on social media. And you've always struck me as someone who's uh, close to your family, but you're that you're also like friends, not mm-hmm. in a in a in not to categorize that in an appropriate way, but like yeah. they, you're friends with your parents. That there's like a real relationship there, and that's always been one of the things I've admired about you. So oh, it nice. doesn't surprise me to hear you you say that. And I also have to say like. I love my mom too. My mom is fantastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. Uh, you know, my mom was a surgeon when I think she was the first general surgeon in Rhode Island in mm-hmm. 1985, which is kind of embarrassing and scary, um, but also indicative of kind of where we are or were sure. as a society. Um, and so, you know, also learned a lot from her about sticking up for, um, um, you know, being bold and and not necessarily following typical roles. So, um, I don't know if my mom would ever listen to this, but uh, hi, mom, love you. It's not just uh, dad who I <laughs> look up to as a hero at you too. Yeah, no, I think that, no, I think that's great. And I, I, and I think where I guess where I'm going with this is that what strikes me as you talk about your dad, but also as you talk about your time in teaching is just when you have these experiences, it's not just going through the experience, but having the sense to synthesize what, what it did and to think about how that specific experience kind of impacted you or how it helps you see the world, whether it's in a same, the same way to like maybe a stronger degree or perhaps, I don't know, I'm just, I'm postulating here, but perhaps maybe yeah. in the case of, um, you know, some of your students who maybe came from different backgrounds than, than you did, perhaps to see the world in kind of a different way and just how that um, those experiences help you kind of shape and evolve the way in which you see the world or how you approach the way you work with others or think about how you show up in the workplace or how you think about um, uh, being empathetic and supporting, you know, other people of walks of life, you know, things like that. Yeah. I mean, it was so formative to me, Al, and, and I know not everyone at 22 yeah. um, wants to be a teacher or should be a teacher. or They might have an idea of a particular interest, but um, my experience and my experience of, of what I observe is a lot of 22 year olds don't know 
what they're interested in. And that's right. completely appropriate. Um, the, what you learn from working with kids, working in a school, you don't have to be a teacher. You could be a teacher's aide. You could be a co-teacher. You could be a coach. Um, you know, I've heard people advocate for ideas of like um, service uh, cores or things yeah. like that, national service cores. And there, there are things like city year that do uh, something like that. Uh, but it just seems like uh, something that would be the, the more people I think who uh, spend time in a community teaching, um, particularly at the beginning of their career, particularly if they don't know what else they'd rather be doing, the skills you build, the responsibility you build, like it would be incredible to continue to find ways to tap into that as, yeah. as a country. Yeah, no, I, 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 I definitely agree with that. One one thing I did want to transition to, and we, we've talked about it a little bit, but I, I want to get to the heart of it. I mean, I think um, where we are in the world right now is there's clearly a lot of problems and challenges, and particularly in the United States, and things that have existed for a long time but are getting brought to light and are exacerbated in a lot of ways, whether it's um, racial injustice, whether it's violence against uh, black people or people of color, um, or just any of the other challenges that are we face, you know, whether it's our economy, healthcare, you name it. Etc. Yeah. Um, business plays a role in this in some way, shape, or form to varying degrees, and reasonable people can debate what that is. But the reality of it is, is that particularly if we agree that business does play a role in this, the people who are in business school right now, um, yeah, they're potentially going to be leading some of these organizations, you know, one day, or they're going to be leading teams of people who are directly impacted um, by some of these issues, right? And mm-hmm. You know, I'm perhaps pontificating a bit, but if you get, you know, I'm curious to know from your perspective, like what responsibility do MBA students, you know, have, you know, with this in mind, knowing that, you know, these are are potentially the people that are going to be building these teams or leading these organizations or that, um, you know, like a lot's been written lately today about the responses um, with respect to uh, the killings of, of, you know, of George Floyd or Breonna Taylor. Um, you know, and, and how companies are responding, but like in, in a couple of years in theory, that could be these, these MBA students if something like this ever were to hypothetically happen again. So I'm just, you know, <laughs> it will, uh, it will happen again. Yeah, no, that's it will. The, right. That's right. The sad right, part. Exactly. right. Totally. And so like, you know, so I guess it's a long winded question there, but I think you, I think you're, you understand what I'm getting at. Like yeah. what responsibility do MBA students have, you know, knowing that they're getting a very good education right now and that, um, you know, what do they have? What, 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 are, what do they need to do or think about? Yeah. So I, 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 I will share my thoughts on this and, and first kind of take the question in a different direction, which I think will be instructive to, to your specific question about what responsibility my MBA students as future business leader, when they are future leaders of business have in this arena. Um, and I'd like to start by just kind of sharing, I've alluded to it a little bit, my, my journey with um, with, with, with kind of the cross section of business school and the MBA skill set and consulting skill set and more uh, social impact, social justice, or more mission driven work. I wrote, I mentioned before, I didn't really know what business school was. Ultimately, when I figured out what it was and submitted my applications, my applications were all about wanting to work in, uh, in, in social impact and work in maybe a nonprofit space, maybe um, a philanthropic space maybe, um, you know, and and do something that was a combination I felt of my passion about working in the community that I got from education and that uh, feeling that that was important to me 
and something that I enjoy doing, as well as this, this toolbox that I would get from consulting in business school. Um, and I don't, I don't think this is a um, sort of a, a novel idea. I think a lot of people at the time and probably continue to go to business school with this idea in mind. And a lot of the thinking goes, if you can bring some of the best ways to run an organization or operate in a market economy <clears throat> to um, the public sector or to um, kind of a mission-driven organization, that the outcomes will um, be improved. Um, or that part of what a public sector or a, um, kind of a, a like mission-driven organization is missing is that specific, specific skill set. Um, my thinking on this has evolved. I don't think that, and, and this is, again, also not novel. I think there's been a lot of literature and books and podcasts and blogs written about this that um, I, I think often what can happen, it, even with the best intention, is this idea of bringing sort of a business school mindset to um, kind of a public sector or a mission-driven place, things that are inherently not, in, not profit-minded, and they shouldn't be profit-minded. Um, one thing that happens is it, it can deplatform people. And I saw this often in education where people would come in with great intentions, but would come in reform-minded with an MBA skill set and want to get an education and deplatform people that had been in education for 15, 20, 25 years who were truly experts with pedagogical experts in terms of how kids learned, in terms of how school systems were set up. Um, and, and I think that there's just the danger that, um, that, that it doesn't end up being collaborative and it ends up being the people who are the newcomers because they have fancy degrees are quickly replace existing experts and looked at as experts. And that's a loss of institutional knowledge, whether it's education or any other field that is not good. And it's just you know, a little disrespectful. So that's one way my thinking on that has evolved. Another I would say is, I think that there are organizations and there are spheres of society that shouldn't be profit-minded. Like whether it's because of mar market failure or it's more important than uh, efficiency or it's more important than um, you know, the things that we get, the benefits we get from a capitalist system and capitalist incentives. Um, like I think education is a great example. Um, I think there's a chance, an argument to be made that healthcare is a great example. Uh, in certain cases. And I think that there's a culture that comes with the MBA skill set when applied in these instances um, that shouldn't be profit minded in this kind of the skill set and the toolbox of efficiency um, and identifying opportunity and segmenting markets that really, um, without even meaning to, disrupts the mission of that organization or that space. Um, so this is fairly long winded, which, but which is all to say. Um, separate from how MBA people in MBA classrooms now will be future business leaders and they should run their team. One thing I encourage everyone in a business school right now, um, chances are you will be, you know, hopefully um, gainfully employed, potentially employed uh, to an extent where you are earning more money beyond your expenses and you can save money and you can invest. Um, pay more taxes <laughs> or be okay paying more taxes uh, for one. And, and understand that, that there are other parts of society that will be funded with your taxes that don't require this MBA uh, and consulting skill set, and that that's okay, and that's not a failure, um, I, and that that's actually important to society as a collective. Um, so, so one thing, you might hear that and think I'm stupid. You might think I haven't made a good argument. You might think a lot of things about me, but I encourage you to just um, be, be open to the idea 
of, you know, maybe paying more taxes is not so such a bad idea because um, there's a lot of people that don't have access to, to things that the average MBA student has access to. Um, so off my soapbox on that point, but I think it's important to set the stage of maybe where I'm coming from for the second point. I think the most uh, actionable thing that I've come to over the last, you know, years I've been thinking about this, but in particular the last three to four weeks, Al, is what can leaders do um, in the face of um, massive racial inequality, um, you know, going back 400 years, uh, a, a, a country where black wealth or white wealth is 10 times on average um, the amount of wealth that a, a, a black person or black family owns. Like these are institutional systemic things um, that are going to take more than a company or a business leader to solve. But one thing I think a, a business leader and company can solve is to be more in, inclusive and be more um, diverse in terms of who they're giving opportunities to. And I think that needs to start proactively. Um, the conversation about uh, wanting to hire a team that looks more like the makeup of the United States, where 15% of the population is black, uh, whereas at a lot of tech companies, 3% of employees are black, um, can't start when you have open headcount. It has to start before you're looking to hire. And, and there's this um, talent leadership development comp uh, company that I've been familiar with, and they have this idea that they say the work for hiring happens before you post the headcount, like I just said. And they encourage all leaders or managers who might one day be in a position to hire to have to actively be thinking about who are the you know the people that I would want to hire right now, who are my dream candidates, and to actively in every conversation be asking people that you meet, like, hey, who are the best people that you know? Um, and would you introduce me to them? So you're constantly cultivating a bench of people that are really smart and talented that you want to hire. I encourage everyone to think of who that bench might be for them right now and do an honest assessment of, is that bench diverse enough? If I had headcount tomorrow and I was able to hire the best people that I wanted, I could pay them what they wanted, whatever, would those people that I would call, would they be representative of the population of the U.S.? either by race, uh, I think there's a particular imperative to do this with black Amer Americans, but also by gender, by sexuality. Um, and if that's true, like keep going and, and, and keep doing the good work. But I think in a lot of cases, it's not true. And so then, then you need to look in the mirror and make a proactive attempt of, okay, how am I going to use the word network? How am I gonna network? How am I gonna build friendships? How are I gonna build relationships um, that are more representative of our country's demographics? If my intent is that my teams are more aggress uh, representative of that, I can't wait until I want to hire and expect to be able to build those relationships in three, four weeks or three months, whatever the hiring timeline is. That's just ridiculous. You would never operate a project like that in a business world. So don't operate your, your kind of network and your hiring pipeline like that. Um, so I know I just gave you a lot. I think the first part was something that I've thought a lot about and is a departure from how I think about kind of the MBA skill set from when I, where I was as a student. Um, and, and so that's more meant to be provocative and give people something to think about who are sitting in school right now. And the second is, you know, um, just an idea. I welcome other people's idea. I'm actually curious, Al, um, how, how you think about uh, this for yourself and, and giving people advice. Um, but we all have a lot of work to do. Um, and if you talk to me in six months and I still only have that idea, then I... Uh, I'm not uh, as committed 
to this being an important of an issue as, as I uh, try to tell myself it is. No, thanks. That's, there's a lot there and that's great. And I, I want to go through some of it because I, I think, I think it's, you, you set up a lot of phenomenal things in there. So I think the first thing about with respect to social impact, I think you're right. I, I agree with that. And I know it's something that, um, and this might also, we might also be biased just because of the nature of our, our friend group and also where we went to undergrad. But I, I do have a lot of friends who kind of struggle with that notion of, okay, like I, I work in business or I work in something, but like, I also want to do good in some kind of way. And so like naturally the fallback has always been like, Oh, well I could go do something in social impact or, or this, that, or the other. And um, uh, there's, so there's, there's a desire there. And, um, mm-hmm. and particularly for my friends who have not only feel that way, but also have gone to business school, there is a desire to, to want to use what you've learned and apply it in a way that strengthens and, and, and makes an impact. And that's, that's yeah. great. And I think the nuance there is that that is great. Sometimes the best thing that you can do is to stand back. Right. And, mm-hmm. and, and to let other, and to your point, like let the experts, you know, handle it. Now I very much am in agreement with the, or very much agree with anyone who wants to say, well, um, sometimes the experts can be blinded by their own expertise. Right. Or like some people who have worked in the system for so long, perhaps, you know, maybe they could use a little bit of like outside kind of perspective. And I think that's fair, but you have to, re- you have to take, um, I, to your point, I have seen other organizations do the same thing where they come in with probably well-intentioned, but they ignore yeah. the, the work that's going on on the ground. And totally. with people who work with those stakeholders each and every day and truly understand them, they may, maybe yeah. they're not as effective as they could be, but like they truly understand some of the fundamental issues and, and whatnot. And so I definitely, in that respect, encourage, you know, people with that toolkit who do want to make a difference to um, seek first to understand and to, yeah. and to, to acknowledge that, you know, maybe your best thing that you can do in that moment is to, uh, uh, is to make that donation to the organization who's already doing, doing the good work. Um, yeah. So I, I, I definitely, I can, I definitely feel the same way. And, um, and I also do think to your point, um, I think one of the, the, the points you made about there are some markets that maybe shouldn't be treated, you know, the same way that we treat all capitalistic markets. Like, I, I think there's a, I think there's a lot, there's a lot of, there's a good argument there. Um, one of the books that comes to mind, I know it's gotten a lot of press lately over the past year is a uh, winner take all by Anand Giri and Darius, um, former McKinsey analyst who um, became a writer and a, a political and social kind of like researcher. Um, but his whole kind of notion is that the idea of that it's, as a result of capitalism, like it's pretty much impossible to do well and do good as an organization. Like they're fundamentally, the goals of capitalism are such that like you really can't do well and do good. And the companies who claim to be doing well and doing good, if you actually look at what they do and uh, they're they're not there, you can't really do both. And I think, I I think there's a lot of truth to that and he does a much better job articulating it than I do. But if anyone's listening and cares to know, they should read that. So I'm a hundred percent with you on there. And so uh, my takeaway there for MBA students is um, seek to understand first. And yeah. 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 And that, that, that's, that's well, well said and better said than what I, I, I would never discourage someone who is truly passionate about going into um, one of these spaces with an MBA to do it. And I think there's real value um, to the communities that you're serving, to the people you're serving as an MBA there. My, um, my, my evolution on it is to exactly what you said, listen and understand and combine 
the expertise that already exists in that space with the whatever sort of organizational expertise you bring to the table as an MBA um, rather than impose. And I think that there was a culture of imposed. There was a sure. culture yeah. of, um, and, and with good intentions, sure. with, with people thinking that part of their role as a yeah. business school grad going to an organization like this was almost to like level up and train up these, the people who had been there for, the, for so long, who had yeah. good intentions, but just like, you know, didn't quite have the right tools. And that was yeah. part of by design. And I, I just think that that's just the wrong mentality. And I, I, oh, I had that mentality, even as someone who was a former teacher, I had that mentality. Um, and I think Anand's book is, is one of the things that really became part of the zeitgeist where people were exploring that mentality and, and, and taking a closer look at it. Well, deserve a closer look for the first time in, in a while. I think 2010s were a time where like, that was just, uh, uh un, an unexamined point of view, mm-hmm. um, the value of bringing that MBA skill set to those worlds. So, so that's, you're absolutely right to quote or to reference Anand's book there. Um, he's very important, like critical to that, to that discussion as are many others. But I love what you said about understanding how core and critical that is. Yeah. And on that notion too, I think that what I, I and I take this as an action item for schools more than anything is to, um, is to refresh the MBA toolkit. Because I do think that if, given the right tools, there are some valuable things, right. That an MBA could bring. Right. So like, let's assume you seek to understand, but like to some of the things we were talking about before, if you get exposed in business school to a curriculum that fosters diversity and inclusion, that teaches you how to work on, on diverse teams that helps you think about how to get the most out of people, how to, how to, how to use everyone's strengths. Um, those are all skills that could be valuable in terms of bringing you know, cross-disciplinary organizations together to solve, you know, really tough problems. And so um, some of this is on students, but I also would put some of this on the, inst- the academic institutions to think deeply about what does business look like in, in this new 21st century? And, and what do we need to be equipping our, what do we need to be putting in those toolkits so that when students do go out into the world that they can use that toolkit in, in, the, right, in the right kind of way? Um, because some of it still probably will include elements of capitalism because not all of capitalism is bad, but there might be some other elements in there too. And I know that some schools are on their journey towards doing that in terms of some of the courses they're introducing and, and, and whatnot. I think it's a great start, but um, you know, time, you know, time is of the essence to a certain degree. Um, yeah. So that's one. Yeah. Of and that, what I, what I, where I see that happening is more from, People who are who are traditional business school professors trying to um, educate, like they're the ones who are updating that toolkit yeah. and curriculum. Yeah. yeah. Um, and they're doing it by, and I think the miss, and maybe this is pro- this might be happening in ways that I don't see, is reaching across the aisle, whether it's to their colleagues and other schools on campus yeah. who are in the school of education or in the school of nursing or in the school of medicine. And and really partnering in updating that toolkit and versus trying to assume what a more uh, collaborative version it would be, but still having the same people in the room designing it, mm-hmm. yeah. the same disciplines in the room designing it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, to your other, your other point, I, I, I think that, um, you know, I very much have taken the stance, like if you're, if you're not actively thinking about solving 
how you, how you can help solve the problem, then then you are a part of the problem. Like I very much do take that stance, particularly with some of the issues, particularly around racism um, and things like that. And so I do think MBAs have a responsibility to, at the very minimum, contextualize that for themselves. And to think about how that applies uh, in their own, you know, everyday experience. But yeah, I mean, here's, here's a given. If you're in business school and you're going to go work in the, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the regular business world, you're going to be hiring at some point. You just are. I mean, I was involved. You and I were both involved in hiring even before we got to business school in some capacity. Yeah. Yep. So if you take that to be true, you should be putting it on yourself to be thinking about how, how do I do like how do I learn how to do this right, right? Like how do how how do I how do how do I learn how to hire in an inclusive way? Um, because you, it's a given. Like you're, you're going to do this at some point in your career, so you should be thinking about it at some point. Like, well, like how do I make sure I do this in the right way, right? Like yeah. I, I do think that people have to take take some responsibility in that um, because that that is a part of what their future is going to be. Um, so. Yeah, I mean, I, I I do think that you know that's a very tactical example. I mean, I'm sure there's there's others, but to your point, um, I guess where I, when I was leading the witness here, but where I was going with the question is that I do think that if you are given a opportunity and a privilege to get a top degree from a an MBA degree from a top institution, you know, Peter, you know, Peter Parker, you know, Spider Man, this with great power comes great responsibility, right? And mm-hmm. so, uh, I think it's on you to think about how are you using or, or given what you're going to do, like, how are you playing a role into creating a more equal, more just, more inclusive, you know, society, um, and world. So, yeah, yeah, I mean, that's, that's kind of what I was, that's kind of what came to mind as I was listening to you talk. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. That's well, that's well summarized. I definitely, um, stood very tall at my box of soap on that one, <laughs> but, but that's fine. No, same here. I'm always, I'm always down for, always down for a good, uh, good Ted talk. Um, I do want to, cl- this has been great, Francis. I appreciate you, um, sharing and I, I've loved the conversation that we've had. Cause I, I do think, um, I don't think everyone will agree with everything we said, but I do hope that more people are thinking and talking about this because, um, I think these are some of the great questions that you can be asking yourself if you are in business school or even if you aren't and you do have an MBA degree, but I guess maybe just to, to close, because I know it's top of mind, particularly with, what business school looks like in a, in a, in just this virtual world. Um, you've made a good effort to always build relationships. I'm just curious if you have any thoughts or guidance or advice as to for incoming students or even second year students to think about how they can go about building those relationships, knowing that there are some constraints now, um, you know, in terms of potentially not being able to be, you know, face to face or, um, you know, having to do it at a distance, you know, how can you still, you know, continue to strengthen, like, and get bonds with people like the ones you had or the ones I had in business school, even if, you know, we can't do it in the same kinds of ways we traditionally did. Yeah, that is, um, that is a really good question. Um, and I don't have a good answer to it, but let me see if we can think through it together or I'm actually curious what you think. But the reason why I don't is, is, um, I don't even know the answer yet to that when it comes to, uh, I mean, I've been quarantined with my uh, partner Maria for the past uh, three or four months, but I don't even know the answer to that when it comes to like my family, yeah. like my parents, my, my, my sisters, Maria's family. Um, you know, every summer I see a lot of aunts and uncles and cousins um, as I'm sure uh, other people do, depending on their family traditions. 
and, and uh, friends and friends are important. I mentioned friends. So I don't even know how to make it work within the context of my own life right now. Yeah. Never mind, um, you know, the scale of hundreds of, of business school classmates that I may or may not know. Um, so I don't have any tactical advice. I think we're all figuring it out. And I think the, the thing that I talked about with my therapist this week was um, we all just need to find ways to be uh, good to ourselves. We need to find ways to understand that ex expectations have changed um, and to not be mean or cruel to ourselves and acknowledge that there's a lot of pain and um, loneliness right now and to not blame ourselves for that. So um, I'm curious if you, you, you have this podcast and maybe you're, you're closer to it on an MBA level. Yeah. Um, but tactically, I don't really have many good answers because I think none of us have good answers. Yeah. And then what's going on right now with trends across the country, we're, we're taping this in early July. Um, you know, it, it seems like it might be a long haul. Yeah. It seems like it might be a really long haul. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. What, what, what do you think? What have you yeah. been telling people who ask you that question? Yeah, it's a tough one. You know, I think that to your point about being a long haul, I think part of the reason why I asked the question is because I think if it is, if we take that to be true, the, I think the best thing that people can do is start to think about what are their strategies? What are their tactics? Like what are the, what are the tools that they have so that they can prepare themselves to continue to use them or sharpen them and then use them, you know, over the course of however long a sense of gain. I think yeah. that um, so, um, something that I've always felt and is kind of, you know, true based off of the research is that, um, you know, like after you've done self-care, after you've been kind to yourself, like if you do feel like you have capacity to give um, yeah. is to think about, you know, in any given moment, how can I, how can I help others? Mm -hmm. Number one, because there are plenty of people who need help. Yeah. Um, but number two, that will, I think, give you a way to feel better and give you some sense of meaning and belonging in some ways. Um, yep. And that can be whether it's volunteering or just even with your classmates for that matter. Um, yeah. And even just, you know, from our own experience, like, you know, like, um, like in business school, certainly like I definitely had moments when, you know, I tried to help out with classmates who were going through certain things that I had dealt with before, or like, you know, like certainly with, with consultant yep. recruiting, like I was a lot, a huge valued asset because I could share my experiences, particularly when things got really tough for people. And like, that made them feel that helped them, but it also made me feel good. And so um, yep. asking how you can help, I think is always like something that can be really, really valuable. And then I think the other thing is, is that, um, you know, I think a lot of times people get to know each other in business school and it happens um, accidentally in some ways because of just yeah. the accidental collisions that you have, yep. but now you're not going to get as many of those. And so you have to be proactive about those collisions, right. And really um, find ways to, to make those happen. Um, and if you're someone who's naturally good at that, um, my guidance to you is to think about how can I help some of the people who aren't perhaps as good at that or who don't do that naturally and maybe facilitate that for a group. Right. Um, or if you're someone who doesn't naturally do that, um, is to think about, you know, what are the ways you do feel comfortable in terms of building relationships or making time to connect with people and finding ways to do that. I mean, like for me, one of my favorite things that I used to do like in business school is that me and my roommate would do taco Tuesdays and invite different classmates over every Tuesday. And that was like one of the, like we didn't party, like we just didn't go out a lot, but like that was our way of like, yeah. and so, you know, if yeah. I were in business school, I would be trying to think about 
for me, like what would be my way of doing that? Um, and yeah. doing it on my terms. Um, granted the constraints are such, it's not going to be the exact same, but that's the kind of, you know, the mindset that I would take. Um, and then I would also say for, um, so for the second year is it's, um, I think you can find a lot of meaning and a lot of value out of trying to really make the first year experience as good as it can be. And I think if you do that, um, you will build relationships either with other second years who are doing it too. And certainly with the first years. And I think you'll get a lot of energy and excitement out of that. So that's, that's the best I got right now. Yeah. I mean, that's great advice. You're absolutely right that all research on happiness shows that if, if you want to be happy, uh, exercise, get good sleep, you know, self-care, but then kindness to others is very close to the top of that list. Um, and so if you can find ways to, whether it's with your classmates, like you said, I love that idea, acts of kindness, uh, or, or ways that you can get together with classmates to help communities that might need them uh, around your school. Um, I think that's a great, great suggestion. That's a great idea. Yeah. Uh, Francis, Thanks so much for joining me. Uh, this was great. We covered a lot of ground, but I always appreciate your insights and your thoughtfulness and your uh, willingness to share your story. But uh, thanks, for, thanks for jumping on today. Hi, everyone. LD here. And thank you so much for listening to the MBA Insider Podcast. If you liked what you heard, make sure to head over to Apple Podcasts and to write a review. It will only take 15 seconds. I'd also love to hear what you've been listening to on the podcast and any suggestions you have for how we can improve. Find me on LinkedIn or head over to mbaschooled.com backslash podcast.